Thank you for streaming Cities After, a radical exploration into the capitalist contradictions of our urban world and the many anti-capitalist futures to come. This is a Politics in Motion broadcast, and I'm your host, Miguel Robles Duran. First, I would like to thank all the audience that has followed us from Democracy at Work. After large changes in that organization, it was very important for us to continue putting out in the public piercing insights and thought-provoking analysis on political, social, spatial, cultural, environmental, and economic issues. As we have been communicating, our goal is to push the very boundaries of critical discourse in pursuit of inspiring radical change while actively informing the growth and development of mass movements that are fighting for social and environmental justice. Setting up a new channel has not been an easy task. Moving from a 10-year-old organization that had a great staff and more than 350,000 followers means that we have a lot of work to do for bringing new followers and convince you to stay and grow with us. Before I get into the topic, I want to ask for your support. We really need it. From just giving us a thumbs up and subscribing to the channel, to recommending us to your friends and family. And if you can, please become a patron and donate to our cause. In the coming months, we will be bringing new and exciting podcasts to the platform. And we will try to set up a public platform where all the patrons can have direct monthly discussions with all our hosts. We have many other thrilling things planned, and we ask you for your patience as we build our infrastructure and try to do better. Once again, thank you. In this first episode with Politics in Motion, I am attempting to do a retake or update to a previous podcast series titled Office Spaces as Homes. I have been reading new doom predictions of a collapse of the commercial real estate bubble and about the active reluctance of many employees to go back to the office. I think it is important to address the topic again. In the wake of the pandemic, one mode of labor exploitation has gained a remarkable worldwide popularity, work from home. In heavily urbanized and service-oriented regions, this prevailing trend has been inciting rampant anxiety amongst the ranks of municipal officials, urban economists, and the real estate industry alike. Indeed, as office vacancy rates continue to soar 
beyond the 90th percentile, we now face an absurd contradiction, which is the plight of the homeless, which has reached dire proportions and has left our cities with a dire need for truly affordable housing. In this episode, I will plunge into the depths of the capitalist undercurrents and some social countercurrents behind this crisis, delving into the ominous consequences and complex future outcomes of this trend. There is no denying that remote work has become a very popular option because it offers office workers a way to avoid the physical and emotional demands of in-person work under capitalism. Workers yearn for the comfort and flexibility of working from home, with the freedom to dress casually and manage their own schedules. However, this desire for a perceived autonomy is paradoxical, as workers must continue to abide by the exploitative contracts and cater to their employers in their demand for productivity in their bedrooms. Remote work requires them to blur the boundary between their work and home lives, sacrificing their living spaces for the demands of their employers. This intrusion of work into personal space is particularly concerning as it exacerbates the precarious nature of labor, causing workers to feel constantly monitored in what used to be their private space, and under new technological pleasure, pressures to perform. This social-spatial contradiction in remote work presents yet another way in which capitalism continues to exert control over workers' lives in new and insidious ways. Although there has been a remarkable shift in the service labor conventions towards remote and hybrid work, and this appears to be favorable to the individual lives of many workers, it is concerning that this has also led to an extension of the separation of work and personal life into the intimate environments of workers' homes. I want to argue that rather than facilitating an urban unification of workers towards class struggle, remote work is serving to further fragment workers' already isolated social capacities under capitalism. The atomization of workers' personal and social lives, which is essential for capitalism's survival, has now been intensified with exploitative salaried labor encroaching into the previously, previously private refuge of people's homes. This intrusion into their private sphere is perfecting the separation of office workers from the sliver of collective working class consciousness that some still retain, reinforcing capitalism's exploitative nature and rendering the idea of work autonomy and freedom even more elusive. In short, under capitalism, the structure of remote work serves more to extend and magnify the atomization of workers rather than to give workers glimpses of emancipatory potential, 
thus reinforcing the deeply problematic individualistic norms of capitalist society. But seriously, why would workers yearn for a return to the office? Is it not an odious place in comparison to their domesticated sanctuaries? Indeed, and that is the recurring question I aim to scrutinize. You know, a captivating aftermath of the pandemic is a somehow growing discernment of one's estrangement from the workplace, of being alienated, as Marx would say. Having realized the daily relinquishment of their productive creativity to an evil and toxic corporate milieu, multitudes of office workers have understandably sought a mode of escape. Not a complete liberation, but at least a measure of freedom from the gaze of corporate overlords. Thus, the widespread clamor for working amenities ranging from the hybrid to full home office are closer to being an exigent requirement of future office work. In fact, this realization of these coercive deficiencies inherent in the traditional office model is not a novel cry, but rather the pandemic acted as a catalyst in bringing this form of human abuse to the forefront of society's collective consciousness. For too long, the exploitative, undemocratic culture of corporate patriarchy and its authoritarianism has held sway over the modern working world. And it appears it's high time for a culture shift. For sure, if the pandemic has triggered something in office workers, it is that they can no longer continue to sacrifice their personal well-being and work-life balance at the altar of capitalist profit. Well, at least not with the same intensity. As a result of having this primitive feeling of alienation, office workers fought for the right to work remotely. And perhaps to their surprise, a large section of the corporate world has met their demands with swift technological adaptations to facilitate this transition. For corporations, the survival of their business is hinged on classic capitalist restructuring to remain profitable. So, lo and behold, more than three years have elapsed since the outbreak, and hybrid work and work from home have become a customary feature in the realm of white-collar work. Now, a study conducted by McKinsey and Ipsos in spring 2021 and later in 22 found that 58% of surveyed working Americans had a hybrid work option, i.e. working from home at least one day a week. And 35% could work fully from home. Even more noteworthy was that 87% of respondents preferred hybrid work or work from home to full-time office work. Extrapolating from the sample, at least 80 million out of 158 million working Americans now have flexible work arrangements. In 2022, the Cisco Global Hybrid Work Study that included 28,000 people across 27 countries showed that 83.4% of surveyed companies were supportive of transitioning to hybrid work. Among employees, 
India had the highest percentage of those who believe their employer was very supportive to this transition, with the Philippines and South Africa following closely behind. Conversely, Spain, Poland, and Korea had the lowest percentage of support towards this transition. But nevertheless, even in these countries, the demand for remote work continues to grow. These findings reveal a significant shift in work culture that extends beyond a mere trend and is having permanent implications for labor relations, societal development, and how we perceive personal and communal spaces. And of course, this shift is having significant disruptions in urban business districts as more people use less and less what used to be a centralized workplace. A consequence that is devastating the socioeconomic fabric of major commercial urban centers. Take San Francisco, for example. In the pre-pandemic world, this Californian city stood as the formidable fortress for those seeking exclusive office spaces. With a vacancy rate of merely 9.5% and record-setting high prices, it posed a severe challenge for corporations looking for a fancy property. However, the hybrid work shift combined with the tech industry's greed and a wild, wild west real estate speculation wrought a significant shift in fortunes. The city's office vacancy rates have now hit an unprecedented 30-year high, with 30% of the commercial spaces left unoccupied. While this abrupt change in office vacancy rates may appear to benefit a few, it mostly casts a dark shadow over the millions who directly or indirectly depended on these offices for their income. The local businesses which thrive on the steady stream of office commuters have now fallen into this use, and it is rapidly becoming a ghost metropolis. The situation of San Francisco is dire, and its future looks ominous. The long-term economic growth it once had has now crept into the shadows of obscurity, leaving behind a hollow abyss of misery, homelessness, and despair. The transmutation of San Francisco is so extreme that I think I will do a whole episode on it. Anyway, I feel it is very important to stress that although San Francisco might be leading the office vacancy strife, many cities around the world are trailing it. Just to mention a few, New York City, especially Midtown Manhattan, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, London, Berlin, Madrid, Amsterdam, Paris, and Hong Kong are at the top of this list. Just two weeks ago, the Global Economic Analysis Consultancy, Capital Economics, made the following forecast as part of a report. And I quote, The reduction in office demand due to remote work will cause a hit to net operating incomes on par with or worse than the experience by malls over the last six years. And in line with the experience of malls, the structural nature of this hit to demand means that 35% plunge in office values we're forecasting by the end of 2025 is unlikely to be recovered even by 2040. 
it certainly appears that there is no going back to pre-pandemic office demands and that remote hybrid work will undoubtedly be the future of office work. Businesses all over are considering it a win-win situation. Workers seem happier and more productive, and corporations spend less in real estate, infrastructure, and in-office operations. But despite the perceived benefits of remote work arrangements, workers are now exposed to new forms of exploitation, on top of those that were the usual ones. The main reasons for preferring such arrangements are very easy to tell. Saving on travel time, improving well-being, and maintaining work-life balance, which all of these are in many cases overshadowed by the insidious penetration of work duties creeping into workers' homes and private lives. And this perverse form of exploitation is facilitated by the guise of home-based work being less violent than office-bound work. It is a cunning means of appeasement, if you ask me. But the fact is that despite the apparent generosity of the offer of reduced office presence, workers continue to receive poor and stagnant wages worldwide. In more unfortunate cases, the privilege of reduced office presence has become an excuse for stingy wages and is leading to workers accepting lower remuneration to work from home. Get this, the results of a recent SIP recruiter survey reveal a concerning tendency amongst job seekers to accept lower pay for the ability to work remotely. On average, respondents said that they were willing to take a 14% pay cut for this convenience. Well, this figure went up to a staggering 20% for parents with young children. Obviously, this willingness of workers to accept lower pay for flexible working arrangement is being exploited by employers, who are not only paying less for human labor, but also paying less for office infrastructure. I think you can see why remote work has become so popular with corporations across the globe. And not only are companies saving loads of money, but it appears worker productivity is also going up. Apart from workers appearing happier, the less time they spend commuting is translating to more time they are dedicating to work. Overall, the emergence of remote work has facilitated an excessive financial windfall for corporations as they can now conveniently mitigate their overhead costs associated with office facilities and operations. And it is very important to keep in mind that workers are subsidizing many of these expenses by using their home as a company office. Furthermore, the diminished frequency of employee interactions has resulted in fewer human relations or HR concerns and are consequently less resistant against exploitative protocols. While this deceptive facade of employee benefits may appear promising, it has ultimately manifested into a lucrative goldmine for corporate entities, and of course, always at the expense of the workforce. 
So while remote workers relish in their limited cozy domesticity, corporate shareholders are gleefully reaping the rewards of unprecedented profits, while top executives and CEOs brazenly tuck away inflated bonuses. And billionaire owners intensify their already obscene hordes of wealth. Regrettably, it is an irrefutable fact that in exchange for the meager privilege of duplicating the work environment onto your kitchen, into your countertop, and enduring incessant monitorings and scrutiny around the desk in your bedroom, one must diligently convert human labor, our human labor, into an even more lucrative revenue stream for the corporate masters. Inevitably, this malicious modus operandi has given rise to a desolate fact. The impoverished, impoverished remain entangled in their hardship. The opulent revel in their ever-expanding riches and the social disparities that scarred our society long before the pandemic now seem to have been amplified at an alarming rate. It cannot be disputed that the seismic shift towards working from home has yielded little or no discernible social progress towards equality. If anything, it has merely rendered exploitative practices somewhat more bearable, which for some is already a positive outcome, but undoubtedly not enough. Hence, the question that must be posed is very simple. Who benefits more from working from home? The impending future where remote work is ingrained as a customary feature in the corporate realm looms even closer. Consultancy behemoths such as McKinsey and Company, Boston Consulting, Deloitte, Accenture, Bain and PricewaterhouseCoopers have been guiding businesses with a very simple message that if they desire to remain relevant and retain highly skilled personnel, they must fervently embrace novel transformative approaches to work from home with all due urgency. These consultancies have insidiously advised companies to continue their invasive practices of closely scrutinizing and quantifying the productivity of the workforce by penetrating into the privacy of the homes of workers and emulating the same overbearing procedures as if they existed in the office. Your homes are becoming their new offices and their old offices are becoming new homes. And this is the other half of the coming transformation. The business of office space conversion into homes. And I don't want you to get me wrong. I am not arguing that working from home is a bad idea. And even less that workers should go back to the office and endure the interpersonal violence and face-to-face -face exploitation that has played corporate culture for decades. Not at all. What I'm arguing is that if work from home is the future, then workers should have the upper hand. They have to unionize and demand extra pay and stipends for the infrastructure subsidies they are providing and for the increased productivity as well as collectively reject any form of technological surveillance. 
that these corporations are trying to implement inside your homes. Okay, so going back to the second half of the argument I'm trying to build, the business of empty office tower conversions into homes, which is a trend that is technically referred to in my field as adaptive reuse. Evidently, empty office towers, desolated business districts, and more remote work colleagues from the overseas have become alarming signs of the slow but painful demise of corporate customs, such as the happy hour, business meals, and the entertainment venues that cater to them. These once thriving and vibrant business districts are now left with the impossible task of keeping their financially precarious establishments alive. This is a damning indictment of a business culture that has always valued profit above all else. A culture that has neglected the collective and social practices that could have made work rewarding. And really, nowhere is this indictment more voiced in the condition of today than by workers themselves in a rising decentralized anti-work movement which has become a forceful voice against the corporate order that underpins work culture in late stage capitalism. With their ideological roots tangled in a blend of liberal democracy, anarchism, and socialist economics, anti-work adherents have taken as common practice to publicly denounce the scourge of wage slavery and domination at the nucleus of corporate culture. The seemingly millions of anti-work proponents worldwide self-encourage in social media platforms to undertake pro-labor measures, from loud quitting to quiet quitting, from rallies to uprisings, from strikes to organizing labor unions, and surprisingly so, one of its most popular forms of advocacy has been to fight for the right to remote work. If their aim is to fully disrupt corporate work culture, then office towers and the real estate industry behind them have become their direct enemy. They have been a roaring voice behind the widely popular lack of sympathy towards landlords, developers, and municipalities for their financial losses in this impending crisis. As I remember, one member of the anti-works of Reddit uh, said something like this, get smoked, you dumbass temples of greed. <laughs> the popularity of the anti-work movement simply indicates that masses of office workers are salivating for the demise of their existing workspaces. Let the office towers burn. Well, not too far from their dream, the bleak reality of white-collar cities is very evident in the deserted corporate skyscrapers with vacancy rates reaching 30% or higher, with some predictions suggesting that this rate could escalate to an average of 50% in some urban areas. So, to some extent, Iconic global metropolises, such as New York City or Los Angeles, Chicago, Toronto, London, Madrid, or Seoul, Hong Kong, continue to exude somehow a magnetic pull on scaled-down headquarters that are keen on occupying sparkly new office edifices. 
perhaps these city-states still wield the economic clout to weather current predicaments. But also, as I noted before, San Francisco is beginning to announce a very different outcome. So, time will tell. But what concerns me the most is of the scores of non-emblematic urban districts around the world, both old and new. Those districts that previously housed branches, subsidiaries, and smaller enterprises from across the world. So the distressing prospect of their uncertain fate hangs in serious balance, which is a haunting reminder of how a capitalist-empowered virus can swiftly restructure the business landscape in unforeseeable ways. The ripple effects of alarming vacancy rates have stretched out across municipalities worldwide, leaving a trail of record revenue losses in their wake. The decline of commuters and business travelers deprived cities of precious leasing taxes from office spaces, coupled with the shrinking demand for conference centers, hotels, and associated activities. Compounding this, the stagnancy in new constructions and the empty short-stay apartments once in demand from the global traveling workforce have further eroded city finances. It is no doubt a recipe for an urban fiscal tsunami that has annually sounding the alarm bells that herald an impending economic catastrophe. Well, the shift towards remote work has unleashed an avalanche of urban perplexities, leaving city officials grappling to find solutions. However, the most prominent solution so far is the conversion of the relict commercial high-rises into residential apartments, which in my view is just a band-aid solution that fails to address the root cause of this predicament, which is capitalism. Or, in less abstract terms, wage slavery, extreme social inequality, corporate greed, and an ever-expanding forms of worker exploitation. Predictably, the real estate industry has become a fierce proponent of the office conversion frenzy, despite bearing significant culpability in creating the present affordable housing crisis. Their latest solution to the crisis is, of course, the conversion of commercial high-rises into residential units. Just doing a cursory online search for office adaptive reuse reveals a torrent of propaganda, thinly veiled as expert opinion from the real estate industry. Their concerted campaign is aimed at lobbying regulators to eviscerate laws and codes that protect residents from potential hazards and abuse in favor of lax regulations and new fiscal incentives that would allow them to extract the utmost possible profit from vacant office tower conversions. And of course, the real estate industry is getting its way as city councils greenlight governmental subsidy programs and fiscal incentives for landlords and developers willing to convert office towers into housing. The strings attached are sinisterly, sinisterly evident. Governments have been coddling the real estate oligarchy with tax abatements and other handouts for decades. 
And the consequences are very visible everywhere. A housing crisis of epic, epic proportions grips cities worldwide. From Vancouver to Santiago, Oslo to Windhoek, or Hong Kong to Sydney. Luxury housing stands vacant, while a dearth of affordable dwellings leads to rampant homelessness and social displacement. The perverse attempts of private developers to solve the crisis has wrought havoc, turning cities into gladiator arenas for property speculation and allowing the privileged few to dictate who can or cannot claim the right to the city. If private developers get their ways this time around, we can expect that the office conversions will make the housing crisis even worse. Please don't believe for an instance their good intentions. Today's city governments face a daunting challenge. They must summon the courage to overturn the 40-year legacy of neoliberal urban development policies. To do so, they must embrace models that guarantee permanent affordability, that enforce strict equity guidelines, and reject speculative real estate practices. If they fail to do so, the vast majority of the office-to-housing conversions taking place today will result in exclusive luxury properties, mere playthings for the avarice of venture capitalists. In the aftermath of the pandemic, the real estate industry continues to view housing through the same callous lens as before. Developers eagerly undertake office-to-housing conversions or erect new buildings spurred on by the promise of high-yield profits and long-term tax incentives that translate in yet more wealth. The true upheaval, however, lies in the vacuum left by the now ghostly office zones, once triumphant symbols of capitalism and modernist planning. As tax revenues dwindle and cities reel from the loss, the true cost of this out-of-control pursuit of profit has become vividly clear. Despite the abundance of empty properties held by landlords, recent history has taught us that such vacancies are far from unproductive. I have spoken about this in detail in previous podcasts. Luxury housing sites, with all their empty promise, blight our cities, transformed into mere commodities in the portfolios of calculating investors. While governments offer adaptive reuse programs and policies to encourage these landlords to extract greater value from their stagnant assets, these measures fail to address the urgent social and environmental challenges facing our cities. For true progress, we must look beyond such token gestures and dare to dream of a more just and equitable urban landscape. The heralded economic revival centered on adaptive reuse, which is a tired effort to recapture the pre-pandemic landscape typified by inequality and segregation, is simply a luxury we cannot avoid. 
Although converting vacant offices into new luxury habitable spaces may temporarily relieve our urban deserts, such a solution belies a deeper crisis. Municipalities may benefit from some extra tax revenue, but such gains are hollow unless we dare to challenge the unchecked profiteering of private corporations through bold public interventions. Only by seizing control of vacant buildings and implementing radically innovative social policies can we forge new forms of community-controlled housing and workspaces that live up to the dreams of the anti-work movement. Failing to do so will only exacerbate the crisis and invite further corporate intrusion into our most personal of spaces, our homes. So today, we are presented with a rare opportunity to reimagine the contours of urban life. The proliferation of empty office towers, once symbols of corporate prestige and exclusivity, now stand as monuments to a bygone era. It is imperative that we look anew at these empty shells and find new ways to breathe life into them. This is an urgent task that all of us looking for a glimpse of liberation must take head on. Seriously, this is a possible emancipatory path. Let's take it together. I know this doesn't sound like a task for the faint of heart. It requires a fierce and unwavering commitment to repair the frayed social fabric of our cities and to rebuild the civic structures that have long been in disrepair. It also demands a willingness to push beyond the boundaries of what has long been considered feasible or practical. But where others only see a daunting challenge, I see immense potential. We can quite literally reinvent the ways in which we live, work and play in our urban environments. With a fresh sense of purpose and imagination, we can turn the vacant buildings and spaces of our cities into dynamic incubators of new ideas and initiatives. In this endeavor, we must be guided by certain principles. First and foremost, we must reimagine urban life towards social and environmental justice, ensuring that our new spaces nurture our planet and rethread our social fabrics. Our priority must be to design living and working spaces that can be more attuned to the symbiotic environments of the natural world and to alleviate the suffering toll that capitalism has brought to human and non-humans alike. And finally, we must place an emphasis on collaboration and collectivity, pursuing a vision which all members of our communities, not just the wealthy or the well-connected, have a say in how we shape our shared urban landscape. The journey that lies ahead will not be easy, nor it will not be swift, but it is a journey that we cannot afford not to act upon. 
The shape of our cities will be determined by the decisions we make now. And the legacy we leave behind will be determined by the courage and imagination we are willing to summon today. Now I want to know what you think and the many ways in which you are practicing work from home or not. Do you subscribe to the anti-work movement? Or are you working on ways to address the empty office crisis? Please write on the comments below. I will be following up on them. From my side, I expect to record the next episode in the first week of August, and most certainly will premiere it on Wednesday, August 9th. After this date, we expect that both Cities After and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles will be out every other week as it was usual. Thank you again for listening, and please don't forget to like and subscribe. <laughs>